The Rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find our newest podcast, The Cam Chronicles, six-part series about Cam Newton. You can find newer podcasts like the Car Sellers Podcast, like Higher Learning. We have a couple new announcements. Stay tuned on the Ringer announcement front because there's a couple big podcast announcements brewing. We also brought TV Concierge back. If you want to hear little mini reviews of TV shows, that's exclusive on Spotify. Coming up, you're a New Yorker. You've got New York in your bones. 25th hour is next. Montgomery Brogan is about to discover He's going to prison for seven years If he can change his whole life in one day Critics are hailing 25th Hour as extraordinary, remarkable A brilliant performance by Edward Norton in a stunning ensemble This will be the best night of my life Edward Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Barry Pepper, Rosario Dawson, Anna Paquin, Brian Cox In a Spike Lee joint 25th Hour, certainly one of the finest films of the year Rated R, now playing in New York and L.A. All right, my old friend Wesley Morris is here. He is one of the world's preeminent Spike Lee spikeophiles. What do you what do you say, Spike? Spikeophiles? Lee maniac? Uh, Lee, Lee maniac? Whatever, whatever you are, you're you're that. Maniacally, I don't know. I got to think about that. Somehow, I like this movie more than you. Twenty fifth hour came out in two thousand two. It was shut out from every major award possible, even nominations, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um. If you're talking about what's aged the best, this movie has aged the best in a lot of different ways. And I honestly feel like this is one of the best movies of the last 20 years for me. Mm. Um, I think it is Spike Lee's, not his most important movie. Uh huh. Maybe not even his best movie, but the most efficiently well done, well crafted, just satisfying movie for me. That he's made. You do not like it as much as me, although you do respect it. Um, make the case against this being one of the best Spike Lee movies. Hmm. I have to say, and this is a very important, hmm, I don't know. Wait, first of all, it's just nice to see you. Hello. It's nice to see you as well. Second, what I'll say is, I realized watching this again, because I knew I was talking to you, I did not feel anything for these people. Mm. I don't know how, I, there's no other way to put it. They did not, and this is sometimes a Spike Lee problem because Spike Lee is frequently interested in characters as archetypes and not as characters. But this is a movie where the characters aren't archetypes, they're characters, and nothing happened for me. And I think there is one extraordinary sequence in this movie, and... I think that that was a place where I was trying to make this investment in people or to figure out like what my relationship was going to be to them for the remainder, for the remaining like 40 minutes. Um, the great sequence is the nightclub sequence, of course. And, you know, the movie is, is rewatchable. I think part of the thing that makes it so great is Rodrigo's, Rodrigo uh, Prieto's cinematography. They had never worked together before, as far as I know. Rodrigo Prieto, one of our great cinematographers, has shot the last handful of uh, Martin Scorsese movies or mm. has been in the mix for the last handful of those. He did The Irishman, for instance, did Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, and the score by Terrence Blanchard. It's my favorite Terrence Blanchard Spike Lee score. Um, my favorite music in a Spike Lee movie. You're just doing all what's age the best things now. Um, I'm just setting up like that. 
despite these things, I feel like there is a question of whether this movie really should just be about the Edward Norton character or whether we should spend even more, whether this movie should be three hours and it should be like, um, like an old Italian movie about three people um, who are very close and are kind of estranged and they're coming together for this, for what is essentially a funeral, right? And I just felt like I wanted more, more of maybe the Philip Seymour Hoffman character and less of the Edward Norton character. Well, if they make this movie now, it's probably a 10 episode series and you would get all that in spades and you get all the other stuff in that. So here's the thing. Okay. I think one of the reasons I've become so attached to this movie over the years is because I like the actors so much. Mm-hmm. That's one piece. Right. I just like spending time with all of the actors that he picked in this. And I care more about the actors almost than the characters in a lot of ways. But the big thing for me is, is this movie in the context of 9-11 and how mm-hmm. awkward mm-hmm. that's been over the last 20 years. And the the ironic thing about this movie is it wasn't intended to be a 9-11 movie. It comes off the David Benioff book that was written before 9-11. They're doing pre-production for the movie when 9-11 happens. And they figure out a couple ways to tweak it to reflect that this movie is about characters in 2002 New York, Mm -hmm. a city that at that point is trying to rally, that has taken a huge hit, that's been broken in a lot of different ways, but has the resolve and hasn't given up. This could go so badly in the wrong hands. You know, you oh, could have yeah, yeah. the five the five separate shots of where the Twin Towers used to be. You could have the people awkwardly shoehorning the 9-11. They really only do it a couple times. They do it in the opening credits. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's that amazing scene, which we'll talk about in a little bit, with Pepper and Hoffman in Pepper's apartment looking over Ground Zero. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then in the flashback scene near the end, all of a sudden there's flags. Um, and it's the direct contrast to his famous bathroom monologue in this, where he basically attacks every part of New York City, but then blames himself. But the way they kind of make 9-11 a character without ramming 9-11 down your throat. And it's just this thing that's part of this whole story. Mm. And this time, and the redemption piece it's really the only movie that fully figured it out. And the only one, other one I can really think of is Fahrenheit 911 when they have, and that's a documentary, but when right. they have that whole 911 scene, it was so powerful in the theater. Yes, yes, yes. And I felt the same way when I saw this movie in, in 2002, December, and you see that ground zero scene and 911 was still so fresh and the wound was so raw. It, it was really jarring. And I think that's why I have such an intense relationship with this movie is when I first, it was uh, when I first saw it and mm-hmm. how that's evolved since. And, you know, 9-11 has faded in some ways and in other ways it's just as powerful. But you're also talking about it's now been uh, 19 years. You're talking people 25 and under have no recollection of what it was like when it actually happened. And I think this is one of the few movies that kind of brings me back to it. The ambient presence of, of 9-11 in this movie. I mean, just to be extra clear, I don't know if we said this, 2002, like, I mean, December of 2002. So we were still very much psychically. I don't even think we were at a point where it was, we were still in the, is it okay to laugh? And that was, that was, you know, 14 months later, 15 months later. Um, And also New York 
you know, at that point, most either you live there or you at least went there once in the last mm-hmm. year. If you're anywhere near there, you knew somewhere, whatever. And the hangover of it was just so intense and so omnipresent that it would have been impossible to make a movie set in New York in 2002 without addressing it in some way, especially a movie that's as intense in New York as this. And then you have Spike, who New York is the character in most of his films. Yes. You know, he has the most intense relationship with New York out of just about anybody. Yeah. And I think that there, I I think that like there's a kind of restraint happening in this movie that I both respect. I mean, Spike Lee, one of my favorite versions of Spike Lee is the unrestrained version. Um, Right, right, right. And I mean, that can go all kinds of directions too. There was something about him like doing, being on his best behavior that, I found fascinating, but but underwhelming at the same time. And I was hoping that going back and watching this for a third time, because I saw it twice when it came out, mostly because, um, I mean, I was going to write something about it and I wanted to see it again. Um, and I tried to see all his movies twice just because, you know, he does a, he gives you more than you can handle in one sitting, mm. um, typically. He's one of those filmmakers. True. And... Um, I don't know. I just, I I think, here's a way that I've been thinking about 25th Hour all these years. I think it is on, it is the B-side to Clockers. Mm. I think, I mean, Clockers for me, Clockers for me might be my 25th Hour. It's not Spike Lee's best movie. It, It might not even be my favorite Spike Lee movie. But it is the movie that Spike Lee, he took a lot of chances and nearly every one of them worked. I mean, that movie is such a such a mix of angers. It is an angry movie that has the like it has one of the great final shots of any American movie that I've ever seen. Do you remember what it is? No, but I I mean, I remember seeing the movie. I don't explain the final shot though because it's the not final shot. Mind. I mean, I won't even ruin the movie by telling you what the final shot is. The final shot is of Mackay Pfeiffer on a train out west. And it is this guy who has been living in, you know, drug dealing in, you know, the New York housing, public public housing system on a train out west. And it is the most optimistic, moving, I mean, it's almost kind of like, I mean, it's not a fantasy, but I mean, the, the way Spike Lee does it, it is, it is a real argument for hope and it's how he gets on the train that mm. is you know it's I'm, this would be ruining the movie which I won't do for anybody who should see Spike Lee's Clockers um, but this 25th hour feels to me like the um, like an like a like a cousin to that movie with respect to this idea of redemption and um, crime well, and 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 punishment in some ways but it's interesting. I didn't like Clockers nearly as much as 25th Hour. And I think that's one of the things that has made Spike Lee so memorable over the last 30 plus years. Yeah. With with most directors, we're all kind of going to kind of agree on some order with them. If you're going to be like, all right, what are their top, top six films? We're probably going to have four or five of the same top <laughs> six. And with, Spike, oh, oh, Spike, yeah. Spike's one of those guys, everybody's top six might have 
Yeah, I think do the right thing would be in everybody's list. Everybody would have do the right thing, and then the five I, other I think movies. the other five could be depending on the person and how those movies hit them when they saw them. Mm-hmm. It could mm-hmm. change depending on the person. Because I think Twenty Fifth Hour. One of the things I love about it is he didn't write it, and I wish he had done that more. Where it's just like, hey, I'm going to take somebody else's script, and I'm just going to make a cool movie. Because there's some visual touches in this. I always thought like. That, that my legacy with Spike is always going to be his knack for like specific scenes, mm-hmm. how thing how things looked, um, how powerful he could use kind of the background of things and whatever performance he's trying to get out of the characters and how the collage of what he was trying to do. I always cared way more about that than like the dialogue that he was writing, you know. Whereas yeah. some other people love the dialogue the most, but. I just think he has he has such an eye for for shit. And twenty fifth hour is just him at the peak of his powers with that. Yeah. Things just look cool and distinct, and mm-hmm. and he's doing tricks. And even when the the famous bathroom thing, the bathroom monologue, yeah, he yeah. unleashes the spike that you like. That's like completely out of control spike for yeah. five minutes. The montage, and there's a lot of tie into uh, do the right thing in that piece, but. Um, I don't know. I just think he's really talented. And I felt the same way watching the five buds where you get frustrated by certain things. And then there's other things where you're like, only spike would do that. Only spike would have played that this way. Yeah. I mean, the five bloods is an interesting thing. I mean, that is to me, him just out of control in some ways. I agree. And I think that, you know, one, your point about who's writing the movie is, is really important because I think that when someone else is, when he's either working with someone else, and I don't always know that that's the best idea either. Um, it's fun but, to mix it up. Yeah. And I think that which movies work based on who did the script is really interesting. I also think that in some ways for him, the more personal the movie, and I mean the more like explicitly personal the movie, with, with, with his non-documentary work, the stronger the movie is. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, Crooklyn, for instance, is a a really atmospheric, impressionistic movie that has all these sort of metaphysical and supernatural elements. And it's so much from the point of view of this girl, but also in some ways, the girl is Spike Lee and a lot of Zelda, Zelda, I think her name is Zelda Harris, um, is she's Spike Lee. And she's just, she's just wonderful. And like watching this, this director sort of make himself vulnerable to his memories and his childhood, um, like the way that that brings this side of him out that wasn't readily apparent. Or, but I mean, again, that's a movie that he co-wrote, I believe, with this, with 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 Joie and Cinque, I believe. Right. Um, I don't know. I I think that he is, he's so open to so many experiences and part of what makes 25th Hour at least fascinating if it doesn't work for you, it's that he is turning over an entire narrative to three white people. Um, yeah. And thinking about, like going into parts of New York that he doesn't normally go into. Um, looking at lives that he doesn't, he hadn't previously looked at in a in a meaningful way, um, 
or where those people would have been counterpoints to this larger narrative the way that they would be in something like Jungle Fever. So I, I that all, all that stuff I really liked. But I well, just- he did it. I was going to say, Inside Man, four years later, was another one that he used somebody else's script. And that's yeah. also a really interesting Spike Lee movie that feels slightly that's, different than all the other Spike Lee movies. That's in the top five. That, that, I, that would be me. like if I picked six movies, that would, Inside Man would be up there. Me too. I interrupted you. You, you were, no, no, you were no. about to do a big butt. Well, it's just, well, the butt is pretty simple. I'm just going back to this idea that like I can't, my thing is, now, and I also should say, like in 2002, if you were to ask me to make a list of my five favorite actors, Edward Norton would be on that list. And in and 2002, so it, well, in 2002, if you would ask me, who do I think is going to be on my favorite actors list in like three years, it'd be Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, cause he, I mean, at that point he had made that really bad Joel Schumacher, RIP Joel Schumacher movie, Flawless, uh, with De Niro. Do you remember that? Where De Niro, um, has, is a, is, has a, has had a stroke. He's a cop who had a stroke yeah, and he's got to be taken care of by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Who's this, that movie's bad. It's very well, bad. So he, so I, I have this actually, I had this written down from 99 on. He does Magnolia, which he's awesome in. Yep. Talented Mr. Ripley is Freddie. Maybe my single favorite Hoffman performance. State say Maine. It, Bill. Oh, say it, Bill. Just say it. Almost famous Lester Banks. Yeah. Love Liza, Punch Drunk Love, Red Dragon, 25th Hour. That's a that's in four years. And yeah. every character is different than the last one. Yeah. I mean, he's a character actor, but I think Capote is like the year after or that's two 05. years later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, five. years later. And Capote comes in 05, but the year before is Along Came Polly, which might be his oh. weirdest, craziest <laughs> performance. He's just insane in that movie. I learned what a shart was from Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'd never heard that term before until I that saw that movie. That movie's really good. We we watched that during the pandemic. That was one of the many rom-coms me and my daughter and my wife watched. And that's kind of the lost, really good 2000s rom-com. It's really funny. Okay. I mean, I don't. Rem- I remember just finding... I am not a fan of like needless gross stuff in a movie yeah. that is not itself gross. And everything he's he's so obnoxious in that movie that I couldn't and the movie like needs him because he's also exciting, right? Um, it knows what it's got, but it gives him these lines and they're terrible. Yeah, like, but they're but just, he's really going for it in that movie. Yeah, no, he's really going for it. He's really going for it. I think he must have made some bet with himself in like the mid nineties that the next 20 roles I play, each person's going to be different than the last person, no matter how crazy I have to be. And in this, and in 25th hour, it's a very subdued kind of creepy Philip mm-hmm. Seymour Hoffman with the hat on, but he's not, he's not kind of, he's not weak. Like the guy in Magnolia who just is melting down in the hospital room with Cruz. He's not super goofy like Scotty J and Boogie Nights. He's not, carrying himself like the Taltimus Stripper guy. It's this completely different kind of old school New York character. He feels New York-y. Yeah. Got the did Yankee hat on. See, did you ever see Happiness, that Todd Solon's movie from 98? Oh, God. Yeah. I love that movie. Even, even though there's a really disturbing ejaculate scene in it. Uh, that's a really good movie. That is, that that's his, that's his jizz on the wall. Yeah. And I mean, I think that character, his character in Happiness is related to me to his character in 25th Hour, where they're these sort of uptight loners who have this sort of um, sort of suppressed sexual 
desire that, you know, could really go wrong in any direction at any moment. And, you know, yeah. in this movie, it's Anna Paquin, who's one of his students at this elite prep school, um, who just completely seduces him. Or she doesn't really know what she's doing. Um, but he knows what he he knows what she's doing. Um, and he's really struggling. The performance is like the struggle about both his friend going to prison and whether or not he's going to risk his career to touch this girl. A plot that would not be happening in 2020. Uh, I think if it's done, I think if it's done the way this movie does it, I think, I think it understands the repercussions. And then once, once the thing happens, that's a great moment actually, where there's a, I agree with you. I just have no faith in 2020. Eh, I think that like if if this is Spike Lee uses that script and has those actors which he wouldn't have in 2020 and like sadly but yeah. I think the way the camera like the moment of the encounter between the two of them and then the look on Anna Paquin's face I think this is a bad Anna Paquin performance but that moment in the bathroom um is just it's just great where it's occurring to her what she did and she didn't know what she was really doing. It's the fourth version of the same Anna Paquin performance before yeah. she kind of oh. started to break out of it. It's like, yeah. how many times am I going to be Lolita in a movie? I got, I yeah. got to uh, break out of that. Um, in 2011, Spike did a thing in Lincoln Center with a bunch of the actors from this movie and mm. he called the big monologue, the famous monologue in this movie, a love-hate letter to New York. And then he said, for me, the love always wins out. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. That was the scene that in the book exists the way it, uh, all the pre-9-11 stuff. It's not nearly as xenophobic, any of that stuff, but a lot of it's still there. Mm-hmm. And then Benioff and Spike together tried to reflect 9-11 in it more, but then ultimately it has the same outcome. And it's a really interesting five minutes to spend watching a movie. It's it it really goes for it in a lot of ways. And then ultimately he turns it on himself at the end. So it all makes sense, but um, it's intense. And it's the, it's the famous scene in the movie. It's the famous scene in the movie. But I feel like the thing that kind of bummed me out about that sequence is that it's just the do the right thing montage, like, but in the mind of one person. Now I get what is, what's effective about that is it's one white guy sort of taking you on a tour of his racisms, right? But it's from um, the book, like right, right, right. pretty much verbatim. Right, right. So that part's That's, interesting that it that it it does feel so much like the do the right thing piece, but at the same time, it's weird that that, that I don't know, the connection had, of just had this other book. Seen, had David Benioff seen, I mean, I'm sure he had seen do the right thing. I just wonder if he was, was inspired by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's possible. So I, I think that I like the uh, the dismount of him turning it on. I'm like, because you're watching it thinking, where is this going to go? Because there's something about the like the full menu of the racism that I'm just like, okay, well, um, well, where is this going to land? And of course, he just sort of he just um, you know death eats all of his all the racism and is like, nah, this is all my fault. Fuck me, fuck me. I'm the problem. And it's a good Ed Norton scene too. And we should talk. We should discuss Ed Norton here. Yeah, let's talk about Ed Norton, one of my five favorite actors from '96 on. 
this is this is the greatest hits. Primal Fear, People mm-hmm. versus Larry Flint, Rounders, mm-hmm. American History X, which will be one of the two weirdest rewatchables we ever do on this podcast, <laughs> along with cru- along with Cruising. Um, Everyone says I love you. Everyone says I love you. I don't know where that is. Is that that's around? There, oh yeah, right? that's ninety six. Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Keeping the Faith. His father Brian Finn. I don't remember that. I one. really like that movie. He directed that. The that's, score. That's Ben Ben Stiller and uh, Jenna Elfman. The score. Death to Smoochie. Frida does the sellout Red Dragon to get the money to pay for Twenty Fifth Hour. Uh-huh. Oh really? And then Twenty Fifth Hour and the Italian Job. Yeah. Hmm. I did Used not know all that. of his Red Dragon money to be one of the producers for Twenty Fifth Hour. Oh well, Ed Norton, la di da. Okay. Yeah, Ed. But uh, I'm with you. I love Ed Norton. Uh, It was an honor to have him on the podcast last year. He's one of my favorite actors. This is like a vintage Ed Norton just throwing all of his pitches performance. But he doesn't... It, it, but the, again, this movie is really about restraint. There's something about the... I like that you have framed this as being a 9-11 movie because I think there's something about how under the top it all is and how um, uncertain about how much pleasure it wants to have, right? I find it really fascinating that, you know, Spike Lee, I think, okay, I'm just going to save this, but then go back to Ed Norton. But I really like the idea that this is a restrained Ed Norton. Um, And he doesn't do whatever whatever it is we had come to expect Ed Norton to be doing in movies. Um, But this is also a moment for him where, like, his career is he's like now expected to to be doing things in movies, um, like carrying them, you know, being a movie star. And I think he always has seemed torn to me about this, this movie star actor question um, and how much of him is going to be Philip Seymour Hoffman changing from part to part to part and how much of him is going to be a leading, whatever a leading man is, a leading man. Um, and this to me is, it's, he's a leading man in this. He's, it's like a, it's like a solid central, um, like who is the archetype Robert Ryan or, um, Richard Widmark. I mean, these are, those are, those are guys that could have played this part of this movie got made in the 1950s. And I'm not sure who plays it in the two thousands. It's the part that Leo would have wanted to do, but he's too handsome. Well, wait, why does the handsomeness matter? This guy has to be seedy enough for me to believe oh, that this yeah. is what happened in his life. And that's always been the issue with Leo. But even then the departed, it's like, eh. And it's and I think he's really good in the departed, but Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's I mean, a pretty there- boy thing with him that is always tough to get past when he's playing like the super gritty guy from the streets character. You're making an interesting point that I think is also affecting my feelings about this movie. And I think it's sort of that maybe I don't entirely believe Ed Norton as this person, but he really, really, really is selling me. There's something about his swagger that I like. There's something about his his confidence. There's a kind of like, there's a kind of masculine there's a kind of masculinity that doesn't announce itself as being, doesn't doesn't initially announce itself as being a masculine first, right? It seems to be these other things. The way it's the opposite of what Barry Pepper is doing, for instance. 
which is this very sort of, he's one of the, he's the third friend in this, in this friend table. He's the other leg. And Barry Pepper is ostensibly, you know, playing the sort of macho Wall Street type guy. He's playing like a guy, a reject from Margin Call or Glengarry Glen Ross, yeah. basically. Yeah, Boiler Room, Boiler Room. Yeah, Boiler yeah. Room, another one, yeah. Was he even, was he in Boiler Room? I feel he like- He might have been. He was in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I feel like the thing that I like about Ed Norton always is that his, there's something, there's something about Ed Norton that is, that is always underneath the surface of these characters where- there's another, there's just another layer that he as an actor doesn't always have to have access. He doesn't always have to, to, have, to have to act, but has access to, it's in reserve basically. And I feel like the thing that, that kind of kept me with him in this movie is that whatever that is for him as a, as a person building a character it's just right there the whole time, and he has access to it. There are things that has happened that have happened to this character. Now, I didn't read Benioff's book. I didn't read the novel, but I think there are things that have happened to this guy that we don't know that Edward Norton thinks happened. Um, and he That's has cool done point. he has done his acting out, and I think the closest he's ever going to come is the realization that he's about to go to prison and is having this racist tantrum in his mind. You know, it's funny. You and I don't normally completely disagree on something movie related. We, I mean, we usually one of us will like a movie more, way more than the others. That'll happen. I thought Ed Norton was like perfect in this. I thought uh -huh. he was the right level of seedy. I thought he was the right level of tormented and kind of broken. And, you know, to me, it's like, it's a movie about redemption and whether redemption even exists. You know, mm, and then mm, to mm. be able to tie into 9-11, with, which is basically the same thing going on in real life in this city, where it's like, all right, I got to put in seven years here. I made a bad mistake. I got fucked over by my friend. He figures out what friend fucked him over two-thirds of the way through the movie. We got to talk about the fuck over friend. Yeah, yeah. On. Oh, yeah. That's coming. <laughs> and then it's like, if it's my life ever going to be the same from this? Mm -hmm. And he comes to the conclusion, No. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to be in there seven years. I will be irrevocably changed by the experience. I'm going to come out. My friends probably won't be my friends anymore. My girlfriend's definitely not going to be waiting for me. And then it leads to the end where he has this whole fantasy sequence of like, I escaped. I got away. His dad's narrating it. I escaped. I got away. My girlfriend came to meet me two years later. Here's what my kids will look like. Here's me with a white mustache. <laughs> Here's me sitting around in my 70s telling everybody the story about how I got arrested and then I got a second chance. And then it cuts back to him in the car and it's like, yeah, you're not getting a second chance. And yeah. I think he's just completely beaten. And mm -hmm. it's depressing as fuck, but um, I think it's effective. I leave this movie and I'm like, fuck. Are there second chances? And now you think in 2020, where it's like you make one mistake, you're canceled forever. Like, do second chances even exist anymore? So this movie, it's not just about 9-11. It almost like you could even put it in the framework of 2020, where it's like nobody gets a second chance anymore. You make a mistake, you're out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's a way, you know, it's funny. There's that scene before they go into the nightclub where the bouncer um, who looks like a very familiar person to me. I don't know why. You know who, who it is. is. Who is You're going to flip out. I think it's Patrice O'Neill. 
Yes, that's who it is. It's Patrice O'Neal. <laughs> I'm like, that guy looks really familiar. I'm I didn't not look gonna... it up, but I'm 99% positive that's who it was. I feel like that's Patrice O'Neal. That's a good one. I mean, the person is very familiar to me, but the context just messed me up. Um, there's there, there's a the, what he says to Edward Norton before um, when he he's about to go club. in the club. Yeah. yeah. And he's just like giving him a little prison lecture. And it's such a... I mean, I think that there, it's about the choices. I mean, maybe you are right. I mean, this existential question and what I love about the movie is that it doesn't, it doesn't, it it really is an adult movie that is not interested in making you feel better about this person's choices, right? Well, Um, don't you think that's why the movie wasn't received the way it probably should have been? There is no redemption at the end. People want, they want the Hollywood thing. They want, the, the idyllic ending at the end where he gets away, but it turns out to be a fantasy. People actually want that as their ending for movies. Yeah, I think people also didn't want to... I don't remember how this movie was even sold, right? I think that... I, I don't remember it being sold. I remember it being sold as a Spike Lee movie with Ed Norton, not yep. as a movie about 9-11 or anything. Um, I, I don't remember who's the studio. Is it? Oh, this is um, this is uh, Universal, right? Or Disney? It's either Disney or Universal, or not Disney, it's, but you know, one of their subsidiaries. Uh, I don't have that information somehow. Um, oh wait, it's like Touchstone or yeah, Touchstone. Like? Okay, so it made it made twenty three point nine million. Yeah, at a with a five million budget, so it did seem like people went and see it. Yeah, but I don't think Disney really knew what to do with it. Well, clearly from the awards, they definitely right. didn't know what to do with it. I don't think they knew what to do with it because this is a movie, I mean, I'm just going to say it, Bill. I would much rather have had this be the movie that took Spike Lee to the Oscars and won him some Oscars than than Black Klansman. <laughs> you know? Like, if there's going to be a movie that's, un, that's like mildly characteristically Spike Lee, um... And is in keeping with some sort of, I don't know, tradition. This is a this is a much more compelling movie for for those purposes than well, than Black Klansman is to me. That's one of the reasons I want to do this as a rewatchables. Here are your two thousand three Oscars nominations. Oh, oh, two thousand three. Oh wait, do I know this? This is a legendarily bad Oscars year, which makes the way 25th Hour was just completely ignored, even more amazing. And now if you redid the Oscars, I think it's involved multiple times. So Chicago, Chicago Chicago Chicago, Lord of the Rings. Yep. The Hours. Yep. Is it, it's, oh, it's not. uh, Yeah, Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York, oh, Gangs of New York, okay. And The Pianist. Ooh, interesting. Now, those are your five. Now we those have aren't the five worst movies. I don't. Oh, the hours. I, I can't. The hours. I can't do that. The hours is indefensible. Um, Gangs of New York is just all reputation. It, but if Scorsese had made, if you just flipped it and Spike Lee made Gangs of New York and Scorsese made Twenty Fifth Hour, I just think Twenty Fifth um, Hour flip. They flip places. That is using your noggin there, Bill Simmons. I love that idea. Thank you. Thank I you. love that. Your best directors, Roman Polanski, wins for The Pianist, even though he's not allowed in America. Um, Chicago, Gangs of New York, The Hours, talk to her. 
Your guy Pedro. Wait, what? Your guy what Pedro. Oh, best director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that, I mean. So those are yes. your five. But I, to me, it's like, I'm pretty sure Spike Lee could have taken Stephen Daldry's spot for the hours. I feel good about that. Uh, best actor. This gets bad. Oh, that's Adrian Brody. Don't, don't, don't. Do I'm fine that. with that. He's good in that movie. Yeah, he's great in that movie. Nick Cage in adaptation. Are we? Oh okay yes. With that? Okay. Okay. I am too. There's another best picture nominee that should have happened, but go on. Daniel Day Lewis in Gangs of New York. I think I'm okay with that one too. I'm, you're okay with that. He's memorable in that. Then it gets dark. Michael Caine in The Quiet American, the um, classic old guy. Oh man, let's get one more for Michael Caine. And then Jack Nicholson in About Schmidt. Oh. I don't know what we're doing. No, don't. You don't, don't like that movie? That. No, stop. <laughs> best best actor? Stop. I like Come on. About Schmidt. Wait, what's best, your... One of the five best acting performances of the O2 movie season? Come on. Stop oh, it. That's interesting, Bill. I'm surprised. Okay. I mean, I have not watched that movie since it came out, so I don't yeah, really know. exactly. You haven't. Best supporting actor. <laughs> Best supporting actor was Chris Cooper for adaptation. He won. Oh yeah, that that of course, yes, a hundred percent. Then you have Ed Harris in the hours. Paul Newman in Road to Perdition, just the classic. Oh, Paul Newman might be dead yeah. soon. Let's give him one more. John C. Riley in Chicago and Christopher Walken in Catch Me If You Can. Oh right, that was Which actually I actually a pretty yeah, good I'm movie okay year. with that. Yeah, I like that. That's a good movie year so, actually. Catch Me If You Can is another one that I think you could make a case could have cracked the top five. But if we had nine movies that year, I think Catch Me If You Can and 25th Hours in there. Yeah, I think Spielberg, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not here to, if we're talking about Spike Lee, I'm not about to shed a tear for Steven Spielberg. But Steven Spielberg is one of Minority those people Report. where they just, they have just given up on him as a, as a great director. They will nominate the movies. Like how many Best Picture nominees have, has he had since they expanded the field with no best director nomination, I think maybe four. Um, yeah, just Minority Report's another one that some people think he should have gotten more acclaim for. That movie's aged in an interesting way, especially yeah. as as we live in the time we're living in now. But anyway, the point is, Twenty Fifth Hour gets shut out, even in best adapted screenplay. Couldn't pull that one off. That was the pianist one about a boy adaptation, Chicago and the hours um, were the other nominees. So 25th hour, the Academy is just like, no, they're just like, not, no. not interested. Yeah. Um, I think that's, but you know, Spike Lee is just one of those people. I think that they just didn't want to pay attention to him because they didn't want to pay attention. I mean, there's, there's so many movies that he's made that he should have been nominated for Academy Awards for that. They just, I mean, and this, this to me is the most no brainer. If we're talking about, um, like a risk, a risk free, Oscar uh, friendly movie, right, 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 right. Um, I don't know. They wanted, well, they wanted, they wanted Middle Earth, not real Earth. We've seen a lot of retroactive racism debate with culture. The Spike Lee stuff was crazy as it was happening when people weren't even really having those debates in a lot of corners. Meaning it, what? Just that he was getting just shut out left and right on this stuff. Oh, it yeah. Was, well, I it mean, was he, insane as it was happening. Yeah. He was, he was his, you know, he, he had no problem talking about it. Um, well, and then people be like, oh, look at Spike. He's whining about blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, right. He probably should, should have a nomination by now. I mean, I, as a as as a, as a like huge Spike Lee uh, 
enthusiast. Um, I always found it disappointing when, when the movies didn't catch fire and when the critics didn't seem to, to understand what the movies were even doing in some ways. You know, I mean, to go back to Clockers, I mean, I do think that that is his deepest, it's one of his like two or three deepest fiction films. And I think that it was disserved by having virtually very few black people seriously review it. Um, I think it is a movie that anybody can understand. I mean, Richard Price, I think, is entirely credited for the screenplay. But it's a movie that's very much about um, its directing and the things that Spike Lee is doing that can only come from Spike Lee, like the malt liquor ads and the way that he turns everything that happens in that housing project into Greek tragedy, everything he asks Regina Taylor to do um, as the mother, uh, as a mother who lives in that in that complex, um, the way the cops function in that movie. I don't know. I just think that is such a great film about like the racism in the NYPD and in policing writ large, the choices that cops can make, and the way that the police have black people's lives in their hands. Like the reason that it and 25th Hour make, or like the way, and like the option that they have to choose life for black people instead of death. The reason that I love Clockers on a bill with 25th Hour is because this is a movie made by a director who understands what a luxury it is for a person to like willingly like eventually just spend a few nights out and about before he goes to prison for seven years. It is... It is, good point. it is, it is such a, what a pleasure for this guy to be able to go to the club one last time and watch his girl dance and, and get driven to the airport or driven to the jail by his dad. Yeah. Like what a, what a treat. Um, I don't know. I feel like the, I, the society, the, the New York that exists for this person versus the New York that exists for strike in, in clockers is just really. I don't know. I mean, I'm talking to you and I'm like, it is a rich movie and I can get a lot out in the conversation. Um, and I know I where it's do coming it. from. Um, you know what? You just stumbled on an interesting point. What? What would be fun doubleheader director movies? Like if you had like the theater that Tarantino has in LA where oh. it's just like, these movies are cousins of each other, even though they have mm. nothing to do with each other. Right. By the you same can, director. By the same director and their okay. movies that are completely different and yet they're weirdly related to each other. Because I had never oh. made the Clockers 25th Hour connection. But you could argue you watch those movies together and that would be a pretty fascinating experience, right? Yeah. Um, if you watched... You see, the easy thing would be, all right, I'm going to watch Tarantino. I'm going to watch Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction together. But that's actually too close. Those are like siblings, not cousins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Tarantinos pick, are all siblings, right? Tarantino never did his version of this, where it's like I'm just going to grab somebody else's script and just put in a professional. Like there was a point when Speed was being made that Tarantino was going to direct Speed and just grab it and do it, <laughs> and that would have been so much fun, right? He never did that one time with anything. It was always he always wanted to be a written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. But I kind of wish he had had three where it was just like, yeah, I'm just going to direct the 25th hour and be out. But in those are six a trap, months. though. 
those are a trap. I mean, Spike Lee at that point, you know, at the point that he's doing 25th Hour, he's got a signature style. He has a name reputation and a lot of respect. Tarantino in 1994, when he would have been directing Speed, I mean, that could have pulled him... I mean, that could have, he knew that could have been derailing, right? He could have been, he could end up like going in this weird Tony Scott direction. Tony Scott. Yep. That's a great, yeah. Uh, The other thing about this movie, I think it catches Spike at the right time. Because I think if he does it five, 10 years earlier, I think he wouldn't have been able to shy away from some of the symbolism stuff. But I think it hits, he's done enough movies at this point that he knows how to make 9-11 a character of the movie without hitting you over the head with it. This is the thing I was going to say before when I was talking about Ed Norton and I didn't want to get off the Ed Norton conversation. I think the thing that's fascinating about this movie is, the, I mean, it's about restraint, right? It's about knowing what you can't do and knowing that like the moment that you're in in 2002 or, you know, I don't know when production began in this movie, maybe the beginning of 2002, the end of 2001. Um I think you just there you just don't want to go too far and I think the, the that that restraint is all over the movie it does not want to indulge anything it does not want to make this pleasurable or celebratory in any way it has this funereal quality that is unlike anything in any Spike Lee movie and so I think when I'm watching it I am I am I it does suffer in 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 Wesley's viewing for not being more 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 directly characteristically Spike Lee. And I think even you know I because get that. I leave every Spike Lee movie with this one thought. When is this guy just going to break down and make a musical? Because <laughs> all of his all the movies I don't love by him and even a few of the ones that I do, the best some of the best stuff in it involves music and dancing. And that is true in the, in Black Klansman, that great um, scene in the bar yeah. um, where you can hear people singing along with the song that I'm not going to remember now, which is sad for me. The Marvin Gaye sequence in the nightclub in, in The Five Bloods, which I don't buy at all from the standpoint of Delroy Lindo's character, but the salesmanship nonetheless is exciting to watch. Um you know, School Days, which is a like underrated Spike Lee movie in many ways. And if you watch it now, all these issues we're dealing with now with respect to like interrogating our institutions are like in, in, in black interrogation of black institutions and black people of their sort of political failings. That's all happening in, in, in School Days, in addition hmm. to all the other things happening there. But there are like three musical numbers in that movie. And they're like, full, like one is a full on musical number. Um, so you wish a, Spike Lee had directed Chicago this year, not 25th hour. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see, I don't know what musical he should direct, but I mean, he's filmed musicals before. He's like done, um, passing strange that, that, that off Broadway, I think it was only off Broadway. I don't think it made it to Broadway, but he filmed that. And you know, that, that requires some work. Um, but I think he, I would love to see him actually just bear down hard on 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 a musical. All right, so this movie uh they adapt it from 25th hour. Mhm. So I read this Scott Tobias wrote this. 
Oh, uh, Scott Tobias. He wrote a piece about this movie and he said, um, by, by the way, I think the, the concept of calling this the most interesting 9-11 movie is not unique to this podcast. I think a lot of people have felt that way. He said that two works of art strongly associated with September 11th were Spike Lee's 25th Hour and Bruce Springsteen's My City of Ruins, both of which were conceived in 2000 mm. and then woven into the aftermath is what mm-hmm. Scott wrote. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting point, which makes me wonder, I actually think that's true. If you're, if you're willingly trying to create something about 9-11, is that almost a hindrance versus having a piece that's already 75 to 80% there hmm. and you can weave the 9-11 piece and all the pain of it and all these different things that come with it into something that already existed that you created before it happened. I don't know if that's a coincidence or something that, but it is crazy that that Bruce Springsteen song is the most identifiable 9-11 song. And yet he changed it from Asbury Park to uh, to New York after 9-11 happened. I think this the depiction of 9-11 is partially an American problem. We don't like to do that. Like we think we do, um, but we really, we're not, we the the more that time goes on, the less in the less self interrogative we get. We do not look to we not we don't like to look inward. We don't like to ask ourselves questions that that might be changing in this moment. I think it'll be really fascinating to see what art comes out of of both the pandemic and this sort of racial this racial reckoning that we're having with respect, you know, not just racial, but like this American reckoning with our, with our past, you know, with respect to black people, you know, native Americans, um, land and enslavement. Uh, I don't know what the art looks like, but I will tell you that this country with respect to its entertainment has a very shitty track record with being, with acknowledging pain and suffering, um, in a historical context. Right. I find, oh, so saying, having said that, I'm going through my mind uh, all the 9-11 movies that I can that I can remember. I think the very worst one I've ever seen. I hope you say it's a Robert Pattinson one. Bill Simmons, it is the worst movie I have ever seen, period. And it is appalling. It is so bad. It's so offensive. It's called Remember Me. Well, I remember it. And it was fucking terrible. <laughs> and I think I even wrote about it. I, it's honestly one of the 10 worst movies of the last 50 years. It's the most offensive movie I have ever seen with respect. It to ends like, with the, he's in a, oh, the plane hitting, oh, going into the towers oh, is the ending. You can't even. I mean, it what is, were they doing? I can't even. That movie is so infuriating. If anybody just wants to be mad at something that isn't like a virus, or if you want to take a minute to just not hate the way our government is being run, I've, I strongly invite you to watch this movie. Remember me, starring. There was Robert a couple Pattinson. attempts as the decade went along. There was a couple attempts to be like, "All right, it's time to make America's ready for the 9/11 movie." And it, and every time it didn't work. I Nick Cage made World Trade Center, which I, wasn't wasn't terrible. I really liked that movie. Yeah, was that gonna, was the other one I was going to bring up. Well. That was, you know, that one, 9-11 isn't just a character. It's a movie about 9-11. But as as the decade goes on, and then you start, there was like that Adam Sandler. What was that one he made? 
Rain on Me? Rain on Me. Didn't that have like a 9-11? I think his wife died. That was died. a post that his wife see, died in 9-11? That is the problem that I have with these movies, right? Like the thing I love about World Trade Center is that it actually is just dealing with the thing, right? That's it, just an action movie. Yeah, that's it, like, it, that might as well be Perfect Storm. Well, but, but Bill, to be fair to that movie. Okay, so the, the, the problem with that movie, that, you know, it's interesting. I think World Trade Center suffers from the thing that I think 25th Hour suffers from, which is a personal problem, right? Like you go to a movie called World Trade Center, knowing all that you know at that point in 2006 or whatever about the politics of what led to that moment, right? And you know the movie's directed by Oliver Stone. I don't think that he made his Bush movie yet. I think the Bush movie's yeah. after World Trade Center. And he's clearly the right person if you're, like I think we wanted him to be Michael Moore making that movie. And instead he was Frank Capra. And it just was, it just kind of, it just melted people's brains, I think. But that sequence- It's still pretty, there's a 30 minutes of pretty gripping stuff in that movie. Michael Pena and Nicolas Cage being buried under all that rubble is just like, Michael Pena and Nicolas Cage, the best acting Michael Pena has ever been asked to do. And Nicolas Cage is so wonderful. That was a crucial, crucial correction. That you said it that way. What? You didn't say oh. that was Michael Pena's best acting. You were saying that was Mike, the best acting he's been asked to do because he's a really good actor who is, he is just the, doesn't he get is good He's the parts. best actor who gets nothing to do. Yeah. I, every time I see him in a movie, I, he's the, my favorite thing in Ant-Man. I, I, he is Michael I also Pena, love it. There's a Spike Lee actor that is... I mean, I wish... I wonder, like, if Spike Lee has a list of people that he just wants to just put in movies and if Michael Pena is on it, because those two guys together, if he could find something for Michael Pena to do, would be, it just would be wonderful. That's been a running joke with Shay and I for a few years now. Any idea for a movie, we put Michael Pena in it because because he just, we just wish he was in better movies. We don't understand it. I love him so much. I agree. I'm down with him too. Uh, all right. We got to get to the categories. Roger Ebert did not put this on his best movies in 2002 list, which a lot of people didn't, but then put it on his great movies list eventually mm. and put mm-hmm. it on his best movies of the decade list. And what's interesting is a lot of people did that, including your colleague, uh, A.O. Scott. Yeah. When Tony the, loves that movie. When the uh, end of the movie, when the end of the decade happened, this movie popped up a lot, which is bonkers because- the Oscars were like, didn't even know it happened. Yeah. Now, but, but you know how it works. I mean, I know how it works. I get it. But that's one of the reasons it's the rewatchables. Uh, Most rewatchable scene. The opening scene is great. He, uh, the credits are great, little emotional. And then we get to him trying to basically decide whether he's going to save this dog. I told you it's not a pit bull. He's look at him. He's a good dog. I can see it in his eyes. He's a tough little bastard. He wasn't lying down for anybody. Sometimes I think you're very stupid, man. Look at him. Come on. If we wait much longer, he's going to be dead. All right. You want to shoot him with my gun? That was a mercy thing. He's not ready to go yet. He, he wants to live. Oh, he tell you this now. No, but it's like a baby. Okay. They don't bitch and scream like that. Mm. There's a whole theory on the internet about does the wounded dog resemble America after 9-11? I don't know if I totally buy it. It's a little too English literature to me. But, um, but you know, from the from the opening scene, it's like this is a movie about can somebody be saved? Yeah. So they do it with a dog and we're going to do it throughout the movie. And, and it's Spike being like, here's where we're going with this, just in case it wasn't clear. Um, second scene. 
the Fed's bus Monty. He's got the drugs in his couch. This is an amazing oh. rewatchable because it's Clay Davis from The Wire as Clay Davis, but he's a DEA agent and he's doing shit. There's something lumpy in here, Mr. Brogan. You know, it's a good thing I found this. It's gonna make your sofa so much more comfortable to sit on. Mr. Brogan, I do believe you're fucked. Royally. I had a lot of questions it's, it's about- It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. He, like, um, that actor, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Yeah. I, I, I've never read any interview where he's talked about this, but I mean, that's just, he, that just belongs to him, right? Like, he just, he's just been doing that. What's weird is The Wire comes out the same year. So it's right. almost like McNulty's busting Monty and Dominic <laughs> Dominic West is just playing McNulty with some Baltimore accent. You're like, why is McNulty in this? I don't know what, why they did the Quay Davis thing, but I enjoyed it. It's always an unexpected surprise. Then we have the big bathroom speech. Fuck this whole city and everyone in it. From the roadhouses of Astoria to the penthouses on Park Avenue. From the projects in the Bronx to the lofts in Soho. From the tenements in Alphabet City to the brownstones in Park Slope to the split levels in Staten Island. Let an earthquake crumble it. Let the fires rage. Let it burn to fucking ash and then let the waters rise and submerge this whole rat-infested place. Had it all and you threw it away, you dumb fuck. Mm -hmm. Which ends after he insults everything about New York, and then it ends. No, no, fuck you, Montgomery Brogan. You had it all and you threw it away, you dumb fuck. Interesting. Disney wanted to cut the scene. And Spike and Benioff were both Shocker. like, Yeah, Spike and Benioff were both like, it's a no-go. Spike's like, that scene's one of the reasons I want to do the movie, so did it's not they, going anywhere. Did they say, do we know why Disney wanted to cut it? Because it, it insults- just the race? Okay, it the insults race. basically everybody that exists. But <laughs> as, Spike, as Spike points out, that's kind of the point. And by the way, that scene's incredible. I can't wait to film it. Also, um, you're Disney. Like, you guys have, like, when, yeah. it, when it, I mean- Settle down, Disney. Um Next rewatchable scene, Pepper and Hoffman looking at a ground zero and arguing about Monty. This is just yeah, that's a great scene with two great actors. The ground zero stuff is just jarring and alarming. Everything about this scene is good. And he's got three choices. None of them are good. One, he can run. Two, catch the bullet train. Bullet train? I'm not saying what he's going to do. I'm saying <laughs> what his choices are. His third choice is he goes to prison. That's it. Yeah, and that's what he's going to do. He'll go and I'll see him when he gets out. Also has the uh, the New York Times says the air is bad down here. And Pepper says, well, fuck the Times. I read the post. Yeah, <laughs> There's just all kinds of little touches like that. That scene's great. Uh, there's a really good Rosario Pepper Hoffman scene at the bar when they first meet and they're sizing her out and they're talking about oh, tits yeah. and all that I stuff. I like that scene. I like that scene. I like that really scene good. where the bartender also invites her, invites those guys to her birthday party on Sunday. But that can't happen because- Norton's gonna be right, be in the, and then she realizes prison. it, and it's awkward. Hey, ladies, you're on me. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Gotta come by Sunday for my birthday party. Yeah. 
Thanks, Jim. Mm. You don't have to come. I was just, I was just saying. No, thanks. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's this. It's a. There's a bunch of well-written scenes in this movie, and I think that's one of them. Uh, Pepper trying to figure out if Rosario Dawson flipped or not is yeah. intense. Monty almost killing Tony Saragusa, aka Nikolai, deciding not to and handing him over to the Russians. Um, the scene when Frank beats up Monty mm-hmm. and the stuff Spike does, I think that's some of the the best directing in his career. The wide shots, yeah, how yeah. everything goes silent except for just the sounds of the park as this fight's happening. The alternating between the slow-mo and the live stuff and then the wide shot of Ed Norton kind of getting his shit together and going over to console Barry Pepper after the everything about it. I mean, it's certainly not a rewatchably fun scene, but it, man, it's fucking intense. And it's a good, it's a good, really well a, done. That's a good sequence. I, wait, that's, is that it? No, and then the dream sequence. Brian Cox oh, the dream sequence. Okay. narrating what his life could be like. That whole thing's really great. What, you have anything else? If I'm Disney, I'm asking to cut that, maybe. That's what I would ask to cut. The the what my life would be like if yep. I escaped? Yeah, I don't I don't mind that, but I I find that last shot of his face in the car just compelling enough. And I get why it's there. I don't mind it, but I wonder how it plays without it. Um so you're saying cut the very last shot of his face looking out in the car. You would no, actually keep keep that. That's your last. I mean, oh, that's still your last shot anyway. But you just the the this the montage, the fantasy montage. You just eliminate that, and the last shot is just him. That's so funny. Him. I love the montage. Producer Craig, actually, that was his favorite scene in the movie. I just wonder how it plays without it. I actually doesn't even bother me that much, and I think that is really the best old age makeup used on two not old people on Rosario Dawson and Edward Norton. Yeah, Rosario looks hot. She's like a hot seventy-year-old. She looks amazing <laughs> in that the, the 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 old makeup. I'm not sure what age she's supposed to be. She's supposed to be old, but they both look great. Yeah, and the kids look way more like her than him. They tried. Yeah. They didn't even go near trying to blend what they would look like. They were like, "Yeah, we we'll just go the Rosario." What do you have for the most rewatchable scene? I love the nightclub sequence. That is, I counted. It's twenty. Four minutes that wow. sequence from the moment they enter the nightclub to the moment they leave. And so many things happen. And I actually wonder if Spike Lee would say that he's so like he's most proud of that. Because those sequences are hard to do. They're, you know, they're kind of they don't they I'm a sucker for the dancing parts of those sequences. But I I listen to I now because it's summer and I have an air conditioner because I live in New York City. I listen to every, I do all my TV watching now with headphones on. And so yeah. I got a pair of good headphones and I can hear all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't hear if I were just sitting in my living room. And this is, I advise everybody to consider doing this if you can, if you've got a nice stereo and some nice headphones and you can, you can, this is a luxury you can subject yourself to. I can hear the sound design for that nightclub sequence. And it is incredible. It's so funny you say this because I watched, normally when I watch movies, I'm just in my house, but where I tape my podcasts, I have, that's where my football TVs are and I have better sound out here. And I noticed the same thing. It yeah. sounded, it sounded incredible. 
It and is I was like, great. I was like, man, my speakers sound awesome. But I, I think, <laughs> I think it was, I, you know, you're right. I think they put real thought into how it should sound. I'm with you. I think from the moment we see Patrice O'Neill, it is him. I confirmed it. Okay, good. All the way through to when they leave the bar is the best part of this movie. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking was, you know how Michael Mann, he's going to flex with scenes like this where oh, this is a, a one, lot yeah. of shit is going on. Like you have like that scene in Collateral. Um, there's two different scenes in Collateral when one where he ends up killing the guy after he tells the story and he just shoots yeah. him. But then that other scene That's where he has great, to go in the nightclub. I love that sequence. Both of those scenes are great, but he's great at a lot of shit is going on right now. Even the start of Miami Vice which same thing, like Cro mm -hmm. Tubbs and Crockett are just mm -hmm. going through this oh. nightclub and a million things are happening. There's lights and sounds. And I wish Spike did had done more of that over the course of his career because I think he's a good chaos director. Yeah. Well, this is a this is, I mean, this is number two after the musicals, except when the chaos is the point of the movie, which is the case with Old Boy, it doesn't work. Right. But Inside Man, where but there's inside moments in Inside Man, same thing. Ding, ding, ding. I think he's really good at, there's a lot of shit going on. I'm going to set the scene. Here's things. You're going to be, you're not going to be able to look away. This is fucking intense. And there's only a couple directors who are really good at that. Like it's, Tarantino's all, obviously good at it. Michael Mann's good at it. Those are hard to do for one thing. I mean, Hell just yeah. in terms of logistics. But what he, what I love about that sequence is, again, this is a movie about restraint. This is a movie, this is a movie like, this is an utterly moral, I'm talking about this though now as a person who loves it. And- I and love it. it. I, I feel like right. I've won you, by the end of this podcast, you'll be fully won over. But, but so I think this is a fully, this is a moral, this is a movie of moral restraint, right? So Spike Lee knows that he cannot go into this club. Um, and the club in some ways is a sort of purgatory, right? Like yep. it is, a, it is a, it is a space with you know three different levels and like a in a it's three different levels essentially, and it is it is a it is a microcosm of the of the you know heaven hell purgatory, and um, what you have I mean he almost literalizes it with the bathroom sequence that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in, but you right. got your blue your red and your regular, and. He doesn't indulge in any of the pleasure that should be happening in this nightclub, right? Like the like the the sex that should happen between the Philip Seymour Hoffman and Anna Paquin character not should happen, but you know that the sex that would happen in a in a bad, morally unrestrained, maybe pre nine eleven movie doesn't happen, and it also is made to be understood to be unpleasant, right? Um. Yeah, the watching, Russian Russian gangsters like enjoy enjoy the rest of your night. It's like this night's not enjoyable, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> Nothing fun is happening in this nightclub. And the the watching Rosario Dawson and Anna Paquin dance that is that is also like pleasure free, right? He doesn't indulge that in the way that another director or a movie made in a different time would. There's just such a um, there's such a maturity to the way the images are made and deployed. And the idea that like, while those two women are dancing way up top um, in, that, in that hallway or booth or whatever, you know, Ed Norton and Barry Pepper are having this intense conversation about, um, 
is is the point of that sequence to find out whether she did it or what is what does Norton tell? Well, he knows he knows one of two people ratted him out. Okay, and okay. he's got Saragusa telling him it was your that girlfriend it was bizarre, right, because okay. Saragusa is trying to knock him off the scent. And he has right. to decide how much do I trust my girlfriend, which is always a fun plot in any movie. I'm always right. in when somebody's like, how much do you trust the person you love? I don't know. How much yeah. do I trust them? I like that reckoning. I feel like Charlize Theron deserves to be the queen of, is my boyfriend somebody I have to kill now? Like, I like I like her as that, as that person. You know um, what? Quick tangent, by the way. I just yeah. watched Devil's Advocate because HBO Max has just a shitload of great movies right now. You poor man. <laughs> she's amazing in that movie. Is it's she? a terrible movie. She's amazing. I just remember how bad that wig was. I just couldn't get past the oh, curly hair. But she cuts am- it, right? Doesn't she lose the yeah, wig at some point? Yeah, she cuts it. She's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, it's I'm going to make Rose you watch it. It's a baby knockoff, right? I'm making you watch that movie. Pacino's, his teeth are just fully capped and insane. Yeah, yeah. Keanu's trying a Southern accent. It's like, There's re- a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff you love. Uh, what's age the best? Clay Davis. I like Spike and Rosario. I like that tandem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What is this? Because I really liked her and he got game, too. I don't remember how many movies ultimately they were in, but I always felt like she was at her best in one of his movies. Yeah. It's maybe the, maybe this is, maybe they made three together. I'm trying to remember what the third movie is now, but. I like the point of time in the careers that they catch Ed Norton and Hoffman. Mm -hmm. I have the music down. We talked about that. I like the, a constant theme in Spike's movies. Um, understandable is his distrust of all cops, feds, DEA, but they're always characters. They're not just like the bad guys. There's always some sort of interaction between whoever the protagonist is with the people. They're, mm-hmm. I guess they're three-dimensional is my point versus just like, oh, these here come the bad guys. My favorite thing about Inside Man is just the hierarchy within the police, the depiction of the police, right? Mm. And I mean, it just, it's just so great. It's just like, he's hes so aware of, I mean, even when he can't quite control all the politics with respect to like the way women function, yeah, or, you know, sometimes he gets so carried away defeating racism or like depicting a defeat of racism that he- Or bringing uses- in real life history into the ending. Listen, with the with the little listen, three minute you, documentary history monologue, Bill, like I, that's my it, that's my most annoying Spike flaw. I can't I can't take it. It is just drives me nuts because he got it right one time. He got it right, and and even then, it's not even it's a different thing. Where like the end of Malcolm X is a totally different thing. It's not he's not bringing in a documentary. He is. It's I don't even know what that is, but it's such a powerful dismount, right? Where you yeah. have at the end all these kids standing up and saying, "I am Malcolm X. I am Malcolm X. I am Malcolm X. I am Malcolm X." It is just that is great. But every other subsequent one of those, it just it feels so cheap to me. In the Five Bloods, it feels cheap, and in um, Black Klansman, it feels cheap. It's powerful, right? Um, where I think a lot of people who love Black Klansman, for instance, they told me. Oh, I mean, the ending is just fantastic. It's amazing. But I'm like, that's the ending of a totally different movie. Right. How about just ending the movie where the movie ended? I mean, I, mean, I just, oh God. Yeah. I really don't like that trick. And he's also, he's- That's why we love is, Spike though. Cause he, he's frustrating. 
Yeah. He's, ta- well, he's incredibly talented and he's frustrating. I think that his talents sort of work at cross purposes sometimes. Like he is one of our great nonfiction filmmakers. And I don't know why he just doesn't make a movie about the Charlottesville march, right? Um, you know, When the Levees Broke is one of the 10 greatest documentaries, I would say, that has ever been made by an American filmmaker, period. Um, and he is, you know, Four Little Girls is really good. His Jim Brown movie is really good. I feel like his, I don't know if he's trying to figure out a way to merge nonfiction and fiction. I just think he gets obsessed with something, throws himself mm-hmm. into it, moves on to the next thing. Yes. Like the five buds, he clearly got obsessed with the specific piece of this story. And he's like, yes. I'm, I'm making an awesome movie about this. And that was it. And then that's a year and a half of his life. Then he moves on to the next thing. Which I just feel like that deserves the movie and him, and it's just not it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair to Black Lives Matter in this case, in the case of of the Five Bloods or the movie, really. Um, anyway, I, I just it's my it's a it's we share a pet peeve, a, a Spike Lee pet peeve. It's all out of love, though. Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't. It's it's certainly one of the most fascinating IMDb's of any director. Of the last in the last fifty years, where you actually go through like, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. I mean, Ooh. yeah. I mean, he's like. I mean, I'm gonna say this because it's true. He's like Joyce Carol Oates. He's like, I mean, a person who is just so prolific that you just can't even, you don't even know where to start. Like Joyce Carol Oates, that woman seems to write a book a minute. And right. if Stephen if you, King's like that too, Stephen Same King's thing. another. Like, oh my god, he wrote another yeah. one. Yeah, I mean Philip Roth, not quite as prolific, but over the body of the body of work, it's like where do I start with Philip Roth? Um, there are some people where it isn't nice and neat the way it is with Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino. Um, there is just a lot of work, and you don't know, you just don't, you don't know where to begin. What's the most disappointed you've been in a Spike Lee movie? Because I have a very, very clear answer on this. Chirac. Minus Son of Sam. I feel like that should have been an amazing movie. Bill! I know. Didn't get there I for me. I love Son of Sam. I know. Ugh. Didn't, didn't, I, I thought it veered in too many different directions. Fair. And I just wanted a movie about the, the blackout and the fucking serial killer trying to get everybody and just that fear and what that summer was like in New York City. And I think Spike knew it was at stake and he just tried to do so many things in that movie. Fantasy is a bigger fan of it than me too. Oh, We've argued I about love- it. That's my I'm number gonna watch three. It again. You know, That's you know, I'm going to watch three. it again. I every time I get mad about stuff as I watch it. The he I mean, got game is very simple. Like the the hooker subplot just needs to be out. Just take it out. Oh, but just see, delete it. Delete it summer, from the cable. Out. Summer of Sam is such an ambitious movie, and it's trying to do so much, and. I mean, talk about the music in that movie. The no, there's the sort of, so many. There's so many things I love in that movie. That's what frustrates me about Adrian it. Adrian, the reality is, great. is, it should have been a ten episode series. We just didn't know that in the late nineties. But I mean, that the way to really do that was to make that a miniseries. Maybe I don't know. I got it. I haven't watched it in a couple of years, but I've seen it fairly recently. I just remember being blown away by. The way that movie never, it loses sight of the actual murders. Yeah. But it he, but it's a trick. It's the same, it's 
it's a weird kind of restraint in respect with respect to 25th hour where he knows what you came for and he's not going to give it to you. Like he mm. knows you came to watch people die. And what he's actually going to give you is a story of the atmosphere around those murders and like you know what, what it would have been like for you know these what? people in this community. I have what? a news flash for you. I came to watch people die. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that energy gets transplanted or transposed no, onto the neighborhood. And it has this great, like, talk about a Scorsese ending. That is the most, that is the best Catholic ending not made by a Catholic that I've ever seen. I just think that should have been the greatest movie he ever made. Well, it, it's- What it's, is a more unique movie to him that brings in all the parts you'd want with Spike Lee, plus you have an awesome story. You have the Yankees. You have New York in 1977. Yep, yep. You have the blackout. You have the simmering racial tension. That's like the fucking, it checks every box of what I would want from Spike Lee with the greatest movie he could make. Isn't there also, I think the other, other- And like, the Yankees. The great thing in there is there's a lot of documentary footage in it. There's like a lot of like, like found footage or archival footage or whatever. That right. movie is alive in so many ways. I love it. I just, I love that movie. I'm going to watch it again. I'll give it one more chance. Please do. I just feel like nobody has captured that movie, that whole era, as well as the Jonathan Mailer book did. Oh, yeah. You read that uh, book and you're like, oh my God, how is this not something? And then, like, you remember ESPN made that Bronx is Burning? Yeah. Yeah. Mini series, whatever burning the is fuck. The, is the book. That right, was bad. Right. Um, anyway, uh, more would say we got to, we're way beyond schedule. More would say just the best. Uh, Awesome Cool Hand Luke poster in Ed Norton's uh, oh, apartment. I looked that up, Bill. I can't find it. It's fantastic. It's a great it's, poster. It's it's big and unusually sized. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great. It's much it's bigger left to right. Poster. It's a great one. Um, the title's really good. Twenty fifth hour. Just like it. I know it came from the book, but that's just a strong idea for a title and a name. And then it's uh, no, but, he hate me, <laughs> or she hate me, she, which is uh, one of my other favorite crazy Spike movies. And Benioff. Dude goes mm. on to make Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was he married to Amanda Pete at that point? No, I don't. I don't think. I think he was not about to win the lottery yet, but maybe it was in motion. <laughs> he is handsome. I mean, if I'm Amanda Pete and I see him at a party, I'm definitely thinking about kicking it to him. Well, I don't want to rat out one of my coworkers, but um, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to name them. But Juliet Lippman. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot if you want uh, David Benioff photos and just any sort of anything she, she's your lady for that Juliet Lipman is my walk buddy every once in a while and uh, well, bring up I, Benioff I she'll start walking faster <laughs> <laughs> you'll see the hop in her step as she's going oh, uh, I only have a couple oh, wow. what's age the worst other than stuff we already mentioned the uh, the subplot of, the, of, of Hoffman's character and the student eh 17 years old. It's a little dicey. I don't um, like it. I also think you could argue you could just take it out completely and the movie's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just Frank beating up Monty is rough. And there's a nitpick with that that I'll get to later. But that's, on the one hand, such a beautifully shot, incredible scene. On the other hand, it's just painful, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. um, it's just a tough one. Anyway, casting what ifs. Brittany Murphy... Mm. was originally lined up to play Mary, which I think was the Anna Paquin character. Mm. Um, and then that She'd fell be, through. Was she too old for that? 
She could have been yeah. Rosario Dawson's character. Not that I want to recast Rosario Dawson, but oh, yeah, Brittany was, Murphy. God yeah. damn. Toby Maguire bought the rights to the original novel and was supposed to be the star and then decided mm. to make Spider-Man and stayed on as a producer. Mm. Oh, that's movie. why he's a producer. I see. I'm going to okay. go out on a limb and say this isn't as good of a movie with Toby Maguire as Monty. Toby Maguire, though, he's a dark horse. He will surprise you. You just don't, you don't, you'll never see him coming. And then he's all up in your face. What's your I favorite Toby Maguire movie? My favorite movie with Toby? Like, well, my favorite Toby Maguire performance or my favorite Toby Maguire movie? Performance. Hmm. That's a tough one. I would go, um, He's really good in that movie, Brothers. Did you ever see that? Yeah. That movie with him and Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, I like he, that movie. He is, he is fantastic in that movie. Uh, also, Spider-Man 2. I think Spider-Man 2 is like one of, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. Well, that's not true. I just really like that movie a lot. And I think he is so wonderful in that film. Um, and all the cutting to him in the action sequences. I mean, it's just, I've never seen better. I, I think that might be one of the best, like, like uh, match on action, um, you know, reaction shot to action uh, performances I've seen. He's just, he's really good in that movie. Also Spider-Man 3, which nobody likes, but the first 40 minutes of that movie where he is Peter Parker is just like bad Peter. Um, I don't know exactly when in the movie it happens, but that whole sequence where he's playing two Peter Parkers, yeah, it's just he's he's also wonderful in that too. Um, um what's Ice yours? Storm. Ice, Storm. Ice Storm. Yeah, that's fair. I fucking that's the love best Ice Toby Storm. Maguire movie. Ice Storm for some reason is just on my DVR, and I have no idea why. But I I never <laughs> want to take it off because I'm just like I oh, never know, never know when I want to go back to 1973 New Canaan for a little yeah. fucking weirdness. I love that movie. It's That's, really, that movie's... Talk about that, the one of the great movies. See, one of the great movies made about whiteness and one of the great movies made by a non-white person about whiteness. I mean, James Seamus wrote the film and Ang Lee, Ang Lee directed it. But it's such a great movie about the hot house of, of, of suburban whiteness in a way that... Only, I mean, I don't know what they talked about when they were making it, but Ang Lee definitely knows what he's doing. I mean, if you watch it now in 2020, and I haven't watched it in, a, I've watched it two years ago, so I can I can put it in 2020. Um, it's just one of the great movies made about, about white people. Save it for the Ice Storm Rewatchables podcast. Okay. Because <laughs> that one's coming at some point. There's a lot to unpack with that movie. Yes. Uh, best That Guy, a.k.a. the Joey Pants Award. You got mm. Clay Davis. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like he's Isaiah Whitlock Jr. now. I, I, I think- Yeah, he's, he's Isaiah Whitlock I think Whitlock unfortunately Jr. he's not Clay Davis anymore, or fortunately for him. I think right. I, he, he's his real name has transcended. Same for Brian Cox, who I think was Brian Cox, if you actually knew movies, for other people might have been like, oh, that guy from this movie, and then Succession Man and Brian Cox. Patrice O'Neill doesn't really count either. So I got to go with Saragusa. Oh, I have a beautiful woman. Very nice. Yeah, well, I'm not really in the mood for that. I got a nice girl. I know, I know. Tonight is special night. Last night is free man. I picked her out special just Wait, for you. The last girl you picked out special for me had three teeth. Saragusa, yes. 
Because I think if you're under 25, you don't even you vaguely remember he's a football player. But yeah, uh, yeah this was he's his big good breakout. Too. He's good. That accent. I don't know where he found that accent. I have a Saragusa story. Oh, please share. As ESPN, I was there for like five, six months. My column was really taken off. And I'd gotten this, my original agent, like a book agent, trying to figure out if I was going to do a book. And they came to me. It's like, we have the project. You're going to ghostwrite Tony Saragusa's biography. <laughs> You'll make $40,000 or whatever it was. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not doing that. And the fact that you think I should do that makes me wonder if I have the right representation. I'm going to write <sighs> Goose with an exclamation point by Tony Saragusa and me oh. in very small print and Bill Simmons. Needless to say, I, I oh. quickly got another agent. I um, really enjoy him in this. He's got a nice, I mean, he aged into his post-sports body quite nicely. It's good. Too. He even pulls off the accent. The mm -hmm. Vincent Hanna Give Me All You Got Award for Most Overacting, Best Ooh. Overacting. I didn't really feel like there was a total overacting, as you said, a movie of restraint. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cancel that category for this episode. Uh, the Brandy Booth Award for Best Performance by a Pet. <laughs> There's only one answer. Wow. Doyle. I'm going to give Doyle <laughs> nine out of 10 Chewies. This is multiple seeds. You're rooting for his redemption. Great He's job, a symbol. Doyle. He could be a symbol of America, according to yeah. some people. Yeah, ah, I'm up to nine and a half. Nine and a half Chewies out of 10. The uh, Dion Waiters Award. Mm. Best Heat Check Performance. I can't say Anna Paquin because I didn't like her performance. I can't give it to Clay Davis because he's Clay Davis. I got to say, I had guy who looked like Patrice O'Neal not realizing it was actually Patrice O'Neal. <laughs> and I think Patrice O'Neal gets it. He's in for one minute, but it's a great minute. It's really important. Nice. 17 years old, man. 17. 17. But he gets the girls jumping, man. And don't worry about the crowd. VIP set up for y'all. Don't worry These about that. These are my people here. These guys coming. You want us coming in here? Oh, man. You're going through the back and the door will be open for you. Don't worry about that. Thank you. Hey, listen up. Don't lose your temper until it's time to lose your temper. You hear me? What about the guy who plays the gangster? Well, I have him coming up. All right. Well, I'll, let's Patricia O'Neill. I don't want to take anything away from the great Patricia O'Neill. Yeah, we'll do Patricia O'Neill. So that's our next category: recasting couch. Who should have played the guy who played the gangster? Because I didn't. That guy didn't oh, work for me. Yeah, that Wasn't guy. A huge I, fan. No. Um, that's one of those things where, like, if you. But again, this is about restraint because you know what? Like Spike Lee could have totally called De Niro, Pacino, Keitel. He could have, Pesci. Spike Lee could have called any one of those, like, I mean, it, I mean, the, it's a Russian gangster, so maybe not one of those. Well, guys, but, but so the, the path you're talking about is like the Malkovich and Rounders path, where it's yes, like, yes, Malkovich it's is super a great fun example. and entertaining, but right. you don't really ever feel like the guy, you know, it's John Malkovich. Right, right. I mean, again, this is a movie that is wants you to focus on what it wants you to focus on, it doesn't want you getting distracted by a bunch of stuff that you don't need to be distracted by. So, yeah, eh, I guess with that said, I would have gone with a better actor. Half-assed internet research. I gave it all to you already. Apex Mountain. The Ed Norton, what was Ed Norton's Apex Mountain is a pretty good question. Mm. You could argue it's coming off Red Dragon and then doing this movie, but this movie wasn't that successful. So it's probably Fight Club. I would say it's... Uh, um, but Fight Club's it, a it, year it, after American History X. He has the nomination already. Hmm, this is a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably Fight Club. 
It's definitely Fight Club. I think he has the most juice after Fight Club. Yeah, because, you know, everything else just seemed like diminished returns in some way. Like he makes that Hulk movie with Ang Lee. Oh, and yeah, no, that's, it not the, that's not the Ang Lee. No, I'm sorry. I can't believe I just did that. The Eric Bana is the Ang Lee Hulk movie. That is the great, that's a, that's a fantastic movie to plug Ang Lee again. Um, he makes the other Hulk movie. Which is um, the the in between yeah. Hulk movie? Um, it's a tough it's, one because you can't be the uh, all I care about is acting, all that stuff, and then do like a sellout role. But he was. In, I mean, imagine. I don't know. I I I I got to imagine if you're Ed Norton, and you know, and there's no question that he is he is one of the best actors in in the movies, um, and for a while the most exciting actor in the movies. There is some pressure on you to not to make good choices, and at some point, like the the needs of your ego and the demands of your of your career, I guess. Um, it just sort of he got locked into a thing that he couldn't seem to get himself out of. Yeah, that's why um, he was so great in Birdman, by the way, because he was. I like him in everything. I'm always I'm always excited to see Ed Norton. Yeah, even but when I mean, he showed up in the Bourne movie, it's like, oh, cool, Ed Norton's here. Yeah, but Birdman was him sort of leaning into and and embracing an idea of himself that I just thought was. I mean, that was what was so exciting about that performance was like he was dialed into something that involved an ego, and he why got to play think, that. Why do you think Birdman didn't have kind of the the legs? Like, if we did it for the rewatchables, I think people would be surprised. Although they're probably surprised we're doing this one. <laughs> I mean, you're like, your idiosyncrasies do count for something, right? With what, with respect to what's rewatchable. Um, I think I always think that the test of the, of this, of these, of these movies is whether or not it, it is. Um, and like how, how much, how, how rewarding is there, is the experience of rewatching it going to be? I think Birdman, I've seen it since it opened and it still it still gives me a kind of pleasure. I have mixed feelings about it, but it's fun to watch. I think it was the most fun to watch the first time because you didn't know it was going to happen. It was mm -hmm. kind of thrilling and it was yeah. kind of like being on a roller coaster, but now you know where the roller coaster is going. Second time, maybe not the same, but I mean, there was a point when that movie came out where it seemed like the guaranteed Oscar winner and Keaton was a guaranteed best actor winner. And then- Aww. Remember, everybody kind of cooled off with about three weeks left to go, and it was it was strange to watch. I th what happened though? I something there's just like a media narrative I think that took hold. I don't remember what it was though. I mean, I'm so far away from that. It was now. a weird Oscar cool off thing. In your um, E2 one, so I mean, there's there's that. Apex Mountain, Spike Lee, no. Benioff, no. no. Hoffman, no. Movies where 9/11 is a character, I would say yes. Yeah. I, I oh, think this 100%. is the signature 9-11 movie, that's even though it's no not about 9-11. Yeah. Okay. That's a no-brainer. Um, what All about right. Barry Pepper? So I was going <laughs> to do this later. Oh, well, let's just save it for later then. Want to do it now? No, no, let's do it later. Let's okay. keep going. Save Barry Pepper. Um, picking nits. I really only have one. Would being uglier really help you in prison? It's kind of a... Uh, it's kind of dubious. I my theory on this is that's not what the whole beating was about. I think he wanted to be punished in some way by somebody he knew because he felt like 
so upset that he had let his life get away. So it was like, yeah. That's a good reason. Ultimately, I just think he wanted to have his friend beat the shit out of him because he was so bad at himself. I think my take. I think that I'm convinced by that. I'm totally convinced by that. Um, Best quote champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. I like that one. I also like. But wait, pause. Yeah. That's just a thing people say. He didn't make that up. No, I just liked hearing it. Um, The one that is from the movie, I've been in three prisons in three countries, and you know what I learned? Prison is a bad place to be. (laughs) It's like, oh, you think so, doctor? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? Fuck yeah. I mean, I I don't want them to do it. Yeah, I don't want them to do it either. This whole concept of somebody's last day would be a really good Somebody's last day before they go to jail is a good idea for a Netflix show. That would probably actually be a terrible Apple TV show. You'd have to fill it out. It's like, we have a Helmsworth brother. <laughs> it's his last day. It's the 25th hour. Oh, Next on Apple TV. You get all three Helmsworth brothers to, to, in a remake to of this a, movie. Yeah, they beat you up You can get all them. three. Yeah. yeah. Um, probably unanswerable questions. Is this movie better if Matt Damon is in the Barry Pepper part? Oh, S-H-I-T. I I asked this for two reasons. One, would he do a better Mm. job? Two, Mm. is that a really fun Matt Damon role that he hasn't really played in a movie? And then three, bonus point, does this movie have a better chance to be recognized for an Oscar if it's Ed Norton, Matt Damon, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and and Spike Lee, and then you have the fourth piece of just the Rounders reunion. And I, Mm. I say this really liking Barry Pepper in this movie. But if it's Damon, where do we... I, I feel like the ceiling gets higher. Well, this is, again, I mean, even without you asking this excellent question, uh, I had already felt like what I wanted was more time with each man on his own, right? And I think that you put Matt Damon in the part and it sort of changes things. I think Barry Pepper became a better actor um, as the decade went on. Um, I think if you put Matt Damon in this part, it does kind of, it makes it less, it just changes the stakes a little bit and you don't exactly know. It would require you to flesh out that character more than he, than he already than he is already. It's probably a longer movie, but I think it's taken more seriously as an awards movie because of the names involved at that point. I wonder. I mean, it's interesting. Like, like how do you, I mean, I wonder what Barry Pepper would say how people would how people would say they feel about Barry Pepper. Like, well, I can tell you how I feel. I really liked him in Saving Private Ryan. I thought he was yeah. good in Enemy of the State. I thought he was excellent in 61, which is one of my favorite oh, yeah. TV movies. He's Did Roger he win Maris. an Emmy for that? He might have. I think I he, really, he was either nominated or he won. I really liked him in Knockaround Guys. I thought oh, he was yeah. good in that. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked them. 25th Hour. All of those movies take place from 98 to 02. And then the wheels kind of came off, but there oh. was a moment there where it's like- 61 you know, was before was before this? Yeah, 61 was 2001. Oh, wow. So that's why okay. I think his Apex Mountain was probably 61. Yeah. Because yeah, you come out of sure. that and you think like, oh, that guy's a leading actor. He'll be yeah. in the discussion. And it yeah. just never happened. Now, I- I think he might have been a little eccentric. He, I mean, mm-hmm. he. I can. Uh, see my that. evidence is he played Johnny Goodboy Taylor, Johnny Goodboy Tyler in Battlefield Earth. 
That's right. It's him oh, and Travolta yeah. and Battlefield Earth. I, without casting too many aspersions on Scientology, like he's in Battlefield Earth. That's a red flag. But that was, but that was during this run that he had. This was I know. 99 or 2000 or whatever, right? I think he might've been a little, uh, I don't know. Mm. Okay. He's a good actor well, though. And he's great in this movie. But I, is the upset higher with Damon? I don't know. Any other unanswerable questions? Does, well, I mean, this is sort of an extra narrative question, but like, what's Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's Monday like? <laughs> I mean- Awkward. Probably awkward, handing right? it his resignation. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder. Hey, stay away from your 17-year-old students with elaborate belly button tattoo earring stuff. That, that's one of the many lessons of this movie. Don't let them into the club. What happens when Norton gets out of uh, prison seven years later? Is Rosario Dawson waiting for him? I'm going to say no. Mm. I think she's long gone. And the dad's probably dead. I don't think, yeah, I don't know. What is her job in this movie, by the way? Do we know? Does she have a career? Or is she just a girlfriend? It's unclear. I, can't I always remember, assume she was like a waitress or something. Because the fight, the fight between her character and Barry Pepper's character is about like, the choices, this you know, the looking, all the looking the other way that she did as yeah. his girlfriend, and how she's complicit in his in his in his drug dealing life. Maybe she was a student. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, Possibly. yeah. Because she was. He does say that she was seventeen. She was. She right. was Anna Paquin's age when they met. So. Right. Whatever. Um, whatever that is. Who won the movie for you? This is a complicated one. Could go in for a couple me? directions. Yeah. Um. But I'm. I'm an adult. And I've, well, I have three answers to that question. Number three, Rodrigo Prieto. Just a beautiful movie. It is just a beautiful, beautiful movie. The I shot- feel like you've come, you've come all the way around. I feel great about this. <laughs> you, this is now one of your favorite Spike Lee movies. This is awesome. I've done, I've done God's work. Um, uh, Prieto is number three. Terrence Blanchard. I mean, again- I just love the tone of this score. I think Me sometimes Ter- Terrence Blanchard and Spike Lee, I think the notes are too bright. Mm. And um, there is a real um, insistence on, on major key uplift. And like this, he gets very close to Aaron Copeland in his in his thinking about the way a score should work. Yeah. Um, and I, sometimes, not all the time, but I think that this... This uh, there's something about the mournfulness of this score. Again, the restraint. I don't know if he's he's obviously holding back, given what what you know Terrence Blanchard can do. And there's something about that restraint that gives the movie a sort of like a real sense of reverence and and holiness. Mm-hmm. And number one, I think Spike Lee. I think Spike Lee proves a number of things for this movie. One is that he can sort of direct with his hands in his pocket, so to speak. Um, he's not gesticulating all the time and he can focus on, on the sort of moral matter at hand in a way that he doesn't always feel he needs to do because so many other things are, are as interesting in his mind as the thing the movie's ostensibly about. And sometimes he gets away with it the way he does with Inside Man where there are like all these different things happening in addition to the caper. Yeah. Um, and I just, I mean, it's, it is a very good directing performance, I think, by him in this movie. I have Spike hands down. Yeah. I hesitate to think anyone could have done a better job directing the movie. It. I don't know. What's interesting is 
I don't know what year of Scorsese would have been the right year, whether you would have gone early Scorsese, vintage Scorsese, or a little late in his prime Scorsese. But I think there's a version of Scorsese that this is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that period in the 90s and early 2000s with Scorsese made like where he was always underrated, like bringing out the dead being, yep. you know, one of his three or four most underrated movies. I think he would have been really cool with this. It has to be somebody who has a real connection with New York. It's the only way it works. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's not, there's not that many. So, you know. I, can I suggest something? Yeah. I would love to have seen a person who had never made a movie before make this movie. I think that, you like know, their one first of, movie. Yeah. I think one of the things, and I'm going to just say this, I think one of the things, despite my thinking that Spike Lee won the movie and that it's a great directing performance in, 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 in some way, I think the thing that keeps me outside of it is the restraint. And I think there's a way that like some rawness should have crept into the material in some way. But it's such, it's on such good behavior and it's so mannered that for me, I am, I am, I am kind of like Ed Norton and Barry Pepper looking down at that nightclub um, sequence mm. with Anna Paquin and, and, and Rosario Dawson. I am, I am an, I am a spectator looking at something, you know, quote, pleasurable, unquote, but not being able to access it because I shouldn't or I can't. I would love to know what a 25 to 33-year-old director um, would do with this exact same script. I'm really curious. Hmm. This was fun. <laughs> oh, wait. Can I ask you one last question? Yeah. Shawshank Redemption and this. Yeah. Two movies about, about some kind of redemption or the lack of it or whatever, and they're prison movies. Yeah. Do they in any way have a relationship to each other to you? No. Because okay. Shawshank's about hope. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, th and this movie is not about hope. Okay. I would actually say, it's interesting. I think American History X in this movie have way more mm. of a relationship because, yeah. yeah. and it's not just because Ed Norton's in both movies, but it's about this guy. And I think this is when he's at his best because it was the same with Worm and Rounders. Um, which is a movie I obviously overrate a little bit, but I love. But Everybody I like when loves rounders. But I like when he plays these guys who I wouldn't like them if they were in my life. I would know not to trust them, mm. and I would know ultimately mm. maybe not not a good guy <laughs> for whatever reason. But he has a way of making me root for those people. I mean, American History X, it's nuts. That guy's the fucking worst. And by the end of the movie, yeah. you're like, oh man, he figured it out. Good for him. <laughs> like, yeah, you should not no. be. He has those scenes with Guy Tori. I just watched that movie recently. I, I think it has some incredible parts. That the stuff with Guy Tori in the laundry room mm -hmm, is like mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and you're like, and you're buying that he's connecting with this guy when meanwhile we've just seen an hour and a half of him seemingly not being redeemable at all. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I don't know. He has a knack for being able to do that. And I think it's a pretty rare quality for an actor. He's, a, he's seductive. He's one of the more seductive people to, to be in the movies, I think, where like you just, you only like this person because this person is playing him. And that's- Well, think of Primal Fear when he does the first That's what turn. I was- I was going to And you're just up. like, wait, why is he doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Ed, what's happening? That is one of the best- 
this is a, oh man, this just can never happen in the movies again, really. Like if we're not looking for stars anymore, we're like this person who seems really promising all of a sudden drops you through a trap door just, just of his acting. It's really, it's a really good performance. Well, if he's listening to me, he's mad because I keep calling him Ed Norton and he likes to be called Edward, but I just think of him as Ed Norton. I don't know. I, I, I'm well, not where did apologize. you get the idea that he was Ed? I just always call him Ed Norton. Did, his because his dad was Ed Norton. Okay. Well, that's fair. But I don't know. I was I was calling Ed Norton. Edward. <laughs> Edward. I don't like calling people Edward. But that's his name. I know. I just call him Ed. <laughs> I've, I'm in a close relationship with him. Okay. Well, then I'm sure he won't mind when you call him a thing he doesn't like to be called. Yeah. My bad. Sorry, Edward Norton. Uh, <laughs> Wesley, this was great. And I'm just going to leave you with this. Yeah. Start dusting off your ice storm thoughts. Oh, they're they're already they're they're fresh. Start dusting it off. Start getting okay. ready to buy a ticket for a time machine to go back to 1970s Connecticut. Yeah, don't make me be Toby Maguire running for the metro, like with 30 seconds to spare. I have two hours alone on the key party, so it's a four hour <laughs> podcast because two will be about the key party. And then the other two will be about the rest of the movie. Wesley Morris, <laughs> thanks as always. Great seeing you. All right. Great seeing you, Bill. Talk to you later. We'll be back on the Rewatchables next week, Monday night. Not sure of the movie yet, but uh, it will be a good one. I promise. See you then. <laughs>